0: Section Seven of the End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter Four: Italy, 1313 to 1378, Part One. The 14th century seemed to bring with it some prospect of peace for Italy. In 1305, the papal court was transferred to Avignon in the county of Provence. In 1313, with the death of Henry VII, the last effort to assert real imperial authority in Italy had been brought to a close. Surely some cessation of strife might be expected from the removal of the two chief rivals, the two claimants, for universal rule. Italians might surely hope to work out their own salvation, freed from the direct interference of Pope and Emperor. If such a hope ever existed, it was doomed to disappointment. The strife of Guelph and Ghibelline continued as hotly as ever. The Popes still continued to direct Italian politics with even less knowledge than before, perhaps, of Italian interests. The Emperors still interfered in Italy not so much now for their own power, not at least with the same idea of imperial greatness, but merely as the tool of an Italian faction. The chief feature of Italian history in this century is, as before, the divided condition of the country and the consequent dissensions and disputes which resulted from it. To this is now added the absence of the popes, their close connection with France and French interests, and the turbulent state of their own dominions, especially of Rome, where families and parties warred more fiercely than ever. In the city-states of Tuscany and Lombardy, this century, still full of feuds and party strife, was particularly marked by the rise of the tyrants or supreme rulers in one town after another. The tendency was for the head of the faction, for the time being, To gain sway by his warlike successes or skill in government, unless his subjects, tired of despotism, were able to shake themselves free from his control. Gradually, the feuds of state with state were leading to the absorption of the smaller cities by their more powerful neighbors, until Venice, Milan, and Florence, in particular, stand out amongst the rest and form the centres of large and compact territories. As a great man or a great state comes more prominently forward, the question is always present as to whether there is a chance of uniting the whole of Italy under one dominion. But though the hope of doing this might inspire great ambitions and encourage many efforts at aggrandizement, the time was not yet come for success. One new development appears at this period which was to lead to disastrous results. Partly owing to the rise of despots, the old military system was gradually changed. In former days, every male inhabitant of suitable age had fought for his state when required. Local bands rallied round the carroccio or city standard, and a martial spirit was spread throughout the whole people. A ruling tyrant, however, was not anxious to arm his subjects and turned with relief to mercenary troops, foreigners hired to form a bodyguard who could be used to quell revolts and to maintain authority. These troops were easily collected at first from the many soldiers left in the country after the various descents made into Italy by French or German armies on the death of Henry the Some of his disbanded troops were ready to stay in the country and adopt war as their trade and Italian citizens gradually came to prefer the payment of taxes for the support of foreign armies to the loss of time and disturbance to work, which resulted from going out to fight in person. These hired bands under condottieri leaders, that is, who made war their trade, at first almost exclusively composed of foreigners, toward the close of the century were often made up of native troops. Some young Italians did not appreciate a purely peaceful life, and were eager to win renown in arms. Others, the members especially of smaller and subject communes, being deprived of that share in political life which was the privilege and occupation of most members of the larger states, turned to a military career. Republics were thus forced to adopt the system of hiring soldiers. The old civic forces of infantry were quite inadequate To face the heavy cavalry of which these new troops were generally composed, and soon all states had standing armies of mercenaries with which to fight their battles. The real danger of these mercenaries appeared when their leaders began to cast off dependence and to form armies of their own, which lived upon the unfortunate country in time of peace and let out their services in time of war to the highest bidder. These great companies were swelled after 1360 by many soldiers from France deprived of occupation by the Treaty of Bratigny. An Englishman, John Hawkwood, whose tomb and monument can be seen in the Cathedral of Florence at the present day, won great celebrity as condottiere of the White Company. Aided by these forces, the Italian states continued their old wars unceasingly all idea of fighting for a cause, such as that of Pope or Emperor, entirely disappeared, and each state fought openly and selfishly for its own hand, for territorial aggrandizement, and for the subjection of its weaker neighbors. In 1313, when the death of Henry VII saved Florence from threatened destruction, the parties of Guelph and Ghibelline were almost evenly divided. Both were equally selfish and ready to adopt any expedient to increase their own ascendancy. Robert of Naples, backed up by the papacy, was leader of the Guelphs, and Florence, with its dependent communes, was a firm supporter of this party. The Ghibellines were strongest in the north, where the Lombard towns figured as imperial cities, while in Tuscany Pisa was a zealous advocate of the same policy. Many of these towns were under the power of despots who felt that in Ghibellinism they had more hope of independence, or who derived their authority from imperial grants. In Milan, Matteo Visconti had been made imperial vicar by Henry Seventh. In Verona and Vicenza, Can Grande della Scala had acquired the same position. Both were very powerful lords and great supporters of the Ghibelline party. The Republic of Pisa fell under the authority of a military leader of great strength, Uguccione della Fagiola, who subjected Luca also and threatened the supremacy of Florence in Tuscany to such an extent that she appealed for help to Robert of Naples. An army was formed under his brother Philip of Tarento to rescue Montecatini, which the Pisans were besieging, before this place, a battle of great violence took place between the rival cities. The Florentines were stubborn and resisted long and resolutely, but Fagiola was a captain of extraordinary ability and was roused to almost superhuman energy by the loss of his son in the fight. Dashing into the thickest of the fray, shouting, no prisoners, no prisoners, he inspired an attack so fierce that at last the enemy wavered, and the Pisans were left victorious on the field. The effect of this battle on the Florentines was not so much to discourage them as to raise a spirit of opposition to Naples, which they felt had not aided them sufficiently. They were saved from immediate danger, however, by the fall of Fagiola, whose power had roused enemies both in Pisa and Lucca, especially one of his own generals, Castruccio Castracani. A revolt was very carefully planned to take place while the dreaded leader was midway between Pisa and Lucca. The conspirators at Pisa managed to collect all the townsmen together without exciting suspicion by means of a trick. They let loose a bull, which they pursued through the streets until a crowd was collected in one of the squares of the town, whereupon they brandished the weapons hitherto concealed, proclaimed death to the tyrant and, heading the easily excited citizens, drove Fajola's adherents out of the place. Luca rose the same day. The deserted tyrant took refuge at Verona and abandoned his dream of founding a supremacy in Tuscany. In 1317, a general peace was signed between the warring states. Robert of Naples, who had negotiated this settlement, had doubtless hopes in his turn of Tuscan supremacy, or even of the headship of Italy. He had been made imperial vicar by the Pope, and the ruling pontiff, John XXII, was practically his creature. Divisions in the empire made interference from that quarter unlikely, and he was leader of the Guelph cities of Tuscany. In 1325, Florence offered him lordship over herself, an offer which he accepted for his eldest son, Charles of Calabria, who, as was usual then, held the southern part of the kingdom as a duchy. This step, however, was due to danger from a new quarter, a danger which was to involve the king of Naples also and render the execution of his designs still more difficult. The fall of Fagiola in Paris was followed by the rise of Castruccio in Lucca, the most formidable of all Italian despots and the most celebrated captain of the time. Villani says of him, This Castruccio was in person tall, dexterous, and handsome, finely made, not bulky, and of a fair complexion, rather inclined to paleness. His hair was light and straight, and he bore a very gracious aspect. He was a valorous and magnanimous tyrant, wise and sagacious, of an anxious and laborious mind, and possessing great military talents. He was very cruel in executing and torturing men, ungrateful for good offices rendered to him in his necessities, partial to new people, and vain of the high station to which he had mounted. In spite of the contradictions in the character of this tyrant of Lucca, there is no doubt of his ability, nor of the adoration he inspired amongst his soldiers. Successful in every enterprise, he made himself master over a great part of Tuscany, and was feared by every prince and town throughout Italy. It was dread of Castruccio's growing power which caused Florence to put herself under Neapolitan rule and the appeal of the Florentines to Robert of Naples led the Ghibellines in their turn to look for help from the Emperor, Louis of Bavaria. Louis had been occupied until the Battle of Muldorf in struggling against the rival claimant, Frederick of Austria. The capture of Frederick at this battle secured his authority, which was rendered all the more complete by the agreement made later between the two rivals. They soon became so friendly that they were said to have eaten at the same table, shared the same bed, and even talked of partitioning the empire between them. The establishment of Lewis in Germany was a great blow to the Pope, who claimed to exercise all imperial rights during an interregnum, and to have the power of sanctioning or rejecting an elected emperor. The result was bitter antagonism between John Twenty-Second and the Bavarian, who took the opportunity offered by the invitation of the Italian Ghibellines to come into Italy and receive the crowns of Lombardy and Rome. Louis's first act, 1327, was to overthrow Galeazzo Visconti at Milan, despite the fact that he was his host and an important Ghibelline leader. He imprisoned him with his two sons and re-established a so-called Republican government under an imperial governor. Castruccio Castracani was amongst the first to join the invader. He became his captain and right-hand man, and was formally declared Duke of Lucca, Pistua, and Volterra. At Rome, the emperor was crowned, 1328, in the absence of the pope, by the people of Rome in a ceremony unique and impressive. He himself, magnificently clothed in white satin, bestrode a white horse. Before him rode a judge with the book of imperial laws and a prefect with the imperial sword. His horse was led by the greatest nobles of Rome, their robes shining with gold. The emperor was anointed by two excommunicated bishops and crowned by the old Chiara Colonna, who had been prominent in the attack on Boniface VIII at Anagni. Castruccio was knighted on the same day and made senator of Rome in the name of the emperor. The coronation was followed by a public deposition of Pope John Twenty-second as a heretic and a traitor, and the appointment of an antipope under the name of Nicholas V. The triumph of Louis was, however, short-lived. Castruccio had to hurry north to defend his duchy from the Florentines, and though again successful in arms, his sudden death in 1328 from fever ended the terror of Florence and robbed the emperor of his chief support. In the same year, Florence had another stroke of fortune in the death of Charles of Calabria, whose assistance was no longer necessary and whose rule was becoming irksome. The emperor was quite unable to make any headway alone he was short of money and anxious to return to look after his German interests. As for his anti-pope, he very quickly made humble submission to John the Twenty-Second and gladly renounced his precarious position. The Ghibelline party seemed threatened with destruction, but Robert of Naples was too downcast after the death of his son to head the Guelphs with any energy, and left the north to struggle alone until a foreign power once more intervened. This time, a leader more enterprising and more romantic than Louis of Bavaria was to make an attempt at solving the problem of Italian politics. In 1330, Brescia, besieged by della Scala, the tyrant of Verona, sent to beg for help from John of Bohemia, who responded readily to the appeal and threw himself with ardor into the Italian struggle. The young king, who became so suddenly an important factor in the affairs of Italy, was son of the emperor, Henry Seventh, and one of the most romantic figures of the century. Handsome and chivalrous, devoted to tournaments and all-nightly exercises, he was no less famous in actual warfare and able to hold his own in court or camp. Elegant and polished in dress and manners, he was curiously out of place in half-civilized Bohemia, over which his father had given him the rule indeed unless kept there by revolts among his turbulent nobles he spent little time in his own dominions but wandered about like a true knight errant seeking for wrongs to redress or weak causes to champion he had aided louis the bavarian at the battle of muldorf which secured him his empire he had made firm friendship with the king of france a country which particularly attracted him He had headed a crusade against the heathen in Lithuania. He was delighted now to find new occupation for his arms and to endeavor to continue a work in Italy which his father had died in attempting. It was a regular saying at the time that no one could hope to carry anything through without the help of God and the King of Bohemia. At first, it seemed as though Italy had really found her savior. Mastino della Scala retired from Brescia, where John was received with the utmost joy and enthusiasm. Banners and green branches were waved before him, music and dance accompanied his entrance, he acted with great dignity and firmness, reconciled warring parties, and recalled all who had been exiled from the city. Other towns hastened to welcome a conqueror who appeared to be without any aim of personal aggrandizement and was neither a Guelph nor a Ghibelline. Milan, Cremona, Pavia recognized him as lord. Parma, Reggio, Modena, and others followed. Everywhere he reconciled the rival parties and recalled all exiles irrespective of their politics. In Tuscany, however, Florence was not won over by the newcomer but continued to resist his advance. Meanwhile, John, threatened by leagues against him in Germany and by the hostility of the Pope at Avignon, was forced to hasten back, and left his Italian conquests in the charge of his young son Charles. Friendship was soon renewed with the Emperor Louis, in whose interests the King of Bohemia claimed to have worked, but meanwhile the Lombard towns were beginning to feel that they had more control than they had bargained for, Whilst the Visconti in Milan and the Scaligers in Verona, the Gonzaga in Mantua, and the Este in Ferrara, jealous of the success of a foreign adventurer, formed a league to undermine his power. The young Charles proved his skill and courage in the victory of San Felice, but it brought no lasting benefit to the cause, and his father, returning to find both parties in league against him, gave up a useless struggle sold his possessions, and left Italy in a state no better than that in which he had found her. So ended an episode, the chief result of which was the impression which it left on the mind of John's son, the future Emperor Charles IV, who had learnt by his experience in Italy the evils of a divided government and of uncontrolled and independent parties. John withdrew to spend the remainder of his restless life in continuous fighting, sometimes in his own interest, sometimes in that of others. It was in the Second Crusade in Lithuania that he lost his eyesight, partly owing to the climate, partly owing to the ignorant treatment of his doctors. The king could not bear his misfortune to be noticed, and would not let it hinder in any way his incessant travels and career of adventures, which he continued until at last he lost his life at Crecy, fighting for his friend Philip VI of France. Carlyle sums him up as a restless, ostentatious, far-grasping, strong-handed man who kept the world in a stir wherever he was. In Italy, after the collapse of King John's attempt, Warfare continued incessantly. Sometimes one power would rise for a time to the top, only to fall in turn before another state or another leader. At first, Mastino della Scala of Verona made himself supreme in the north, but was crushed by a league in which Florence and Milan played the leading part. Florence, disappointed at the little result this brought to her, called to her aid a warrior of great reputation Walter of Brienne, Duke of Athens, who was made dictator for the time, 1343, although he failed to hold his position long. Next came the extraordinary advance of Milan under the House of Visconti. Azzo Visconti had been an active opponent of John of Bohemia and greatly extended his own power by joining leagues against him. His successors, one after the other, added to the lands of the Duchy of Milan, and increased their own importance by grand alliances abroad and unexampled atrocities at home, until it seemed, with John Galeazzo, that the height of wickedness and of power had been reached, and that a kingdom of northern Italy might be founded under a tyrant, the recital of whose deeds still makes the blood run cold. But of this later, If all Italy felt that they had more chance of striking for their own advantage during the absence of the Pope, nowhere was this so obvious as in Rome itself. In the holy city, confusion and discord were worse than ever. The Orsini and the Colonna carried on their feuds and their quarrels unchecked. Open warfare often raged in the streets. The citizens were oppressed by both parties alike, and could obtain neither justice nor redress from the proud and selfish nobles. Message after message was sent to Avignon, begging the return of the Pope. John XXII spoke of coming, but the attractions of Avignon and the influence of the French king were too great, and the whole of Romagna broke into open rebellion. The succeeding Pope, Benedict XII, Was proclaimed senator and captain of the Roman Republic, but though proud of the distinction, he contented himself with a vain attempt to heal strife from afar. In the midst of all this misery and civil war, a curious ceremony took place in Rome, which may have helped to stir up old memories of greatness in the minds of the people, and which impressed one at least of the audience with a hope of reviving ancient glories. A fellow citizen of Dante, the poet Petrarch, whose writings were just bringing him into prominence, was crowned on the Capitol with the Laurel Reef, 1311, after a lengthy examination conducted by Robert of Naples. The procession to the Senate Hall, the red-robed youths reciting Petrarch's poems to the glory of the Roman people, the senator in green, the poet with his royal robe and laurel crown, must have offered an extraordinarily impressive sight to the citizens used to the turmoil and bloodshed of private feuds. Colla Rienzi, a spectator of this ceremony, whose youthful mind was stored with knowledge of the past splendors of Rome and with horror of her present state of degradation, came into public notice shortly after this event. Of humble parentage, a notary by profession. He early attracted attention by his handsome person and marvelous eloquence, and was one of an embassy sent to Avignon in 1343 to implore the return of Clement VI. Rienzi was an inveterate opponent of the aristocrats, by whom his own brother had been ruthlessly murdered, and full of sympathy for the poor and the oppressed, his speeches before the Pope excited much notice and admiration. All through his life he had evidently the true orator's gift of swaying men by a word, an almost miraculous power of influence and attraction. The Pope honored him with an official post in Rome, and on his return from Avignon, Rienzi set himself, heart and soul, to prepare the way for a democratic revolution. Little by little he won over the people— he excited their minds by speeches and allegorical pictures, which showed Rome in shame and distress from which popular effort alone could raise her. To avert suspicion until his schemes were ripe, he played the buffoon before the Orsini and the Colonna, so that they never dreamed of his real character and power. When the time came, he struck boldly and with promptitude. On Whitsunday, 1347, having spent the previous night, in prayer and preparation, he headed a procession to the capital, where he had summoned the meeting of the people to consider the passing of new laws and measures of government. There he swayed the crowd by his eloquence and proclaimed an edict of reform and retribution. With one accord, the assembly hailed him as their ruler and gave him full power over the laws and government of the Roman Republic. This revolution was accomplished without the shedding of one drop of blood, struck as by a spell. The old senators fled, and many nobles hastened from the city where their power had been undermined. Rienzi took the title of tribune and proclaimed himself Redeemer of the Holy Roman Republic. End of Section 7